From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and today we're doing an interview show, and it's going to be a really good one because it's actually with my first double dipper. And what I mean by that is that who we have today is Gretchen McCullough, who's actually been on the show with me before. This is the first time. So, Gretchen, remember when we did this in 2016? I do. It was fun. It'll yeah. be fun again. It was way back in a, in a more innocent America. In any case, <laughs> today we have Gretchen McCullough, and she, among many other things, co-hosts the second best linguistics podcast, Lingthusiasm, with Lauren Gown. And she runs the blog All Things Linguistic, but more to the point. She is the author of a book that's hot off the presses called Because Internet. And as I tape, there is a truly lovely review of it in the New York Times. And I'm sure that Gretchen is quite happy about that. Gretchen, there isn't a sour note in the review. I would pay a great deal of money to get a review for anything I do that is that unqualifiedly enthusiastic. Gretchen, I always say that there are three books to be written about language that could really make a hit with the public. One of them is about profanity, and I'm trying to write one of those. One of them is about whether or not language is specified genetically, and Steven Pinker took care of that about a quarter century ago. And then the other one is a book saying that people don't use language well anymore, and Lynn Trust took care of that. Then you can write a book saying that that's not true, and a bunch of us have done that. But there's a fourth kind of book that actually needs to be out there. I need to revise that. There needs to be a book about how language is used on the internet slash in social media. And you have done that. And I want you to tell me something, which is going to seem like a kind of ingenuous question. But what is an internet linguist? You are an internet linguist. There's internet linguistics. What actually is that? I think the simplest definition is that it's a linguist who is interested in analyzing the language of the internet. But for me, I also like to describe it as a linguist who analyzes language for the internet. I see myself in this role of public communicator about internet language doing this in service of internet people. So I see it as a double role. Technically speaking, you could get away with just the language of the internet, but I also see it as explaining the internet to itself and giving people that satisfaction of feeling like, oh, this is what's going on. This is what I've been doing subconsciously. Yeah, it's it's actually gotten to that point where one must be aware of these things. And actually, you have a, a taxonomy in the book that I think is something that's really going to get around about it and last. People are going to be assigning that part in classes probably for the next 15 years. You have this, this idea that there are Old internet people, full internet people, semi-internet people, pre-internet people, and post-internet people. Which one of those, for example, are you? So what's really interesting is that I see myself on the boundary between several different types, which I think is maybe what made them so clear to me, because hmm. I felt like I wasn't fully part of any of these different groups. And right. technically speaking, the group that I belong to the most is this group of full internet people, people who started using the internet, the social internet, with things like AIM, MSN Messenger, you know, instant messaging platforms, and started using the internet as a way to connect with friends because they didn't necessarily have the physical mobility, you know, being constrained as teenagers and so on, right. to talk to friends face-to-face, but talking to people you already knew offline. But the interesting right. thing is, this is what all my friends were doing at the time. This is the social pressure that I existed in. But mm -hmm. 
I didn't actually do this very much. <laughs> you as an individual. Me as an individual. So right. this is the social milieu that I was in. I absorbed the norms, but I was a bit of a tech holdout, which is funny if you think of my career now, because <laughs> I spent so much time online. But for a few years, you know, in the 90s, when everyone was getting online, I was like, this online thing is overblown. Dial-up internet is very slow. It's inefficient. God, remember that? Now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let me go read my book because my book pages can load right. like 10 times as fast as like any sort of Google results. <laughs> I remember that feeling that, yeah, the printed page was better, right, for a while. So I yeah. have a lot of sympathy with the group that I describe as semi-internet people, the group that joined the internet for functional reasons first, because in some ways I did that, right. even though that wasn't what my friends were doing at the time, and even though that really is more of my parents' generation. But it's not strictly an age thing, there's also an attitude. And then yeah. what's interesting is then when I got online, I was doing so more to like read blogs and use Google Reader and these kinds of things and inherited some of the tail end of what I call the old internet people, the people who went online to connect with strangers. Because I went online in the end to find linguistics blogs, as you right. do. Right, right. You know, I had friends face to face, so why not go online to try to connect with a different group of people like linguists who I didn't know any of? So... I see myself as straddling these groups. Yeah, and it helps to analyze something to be somebody who, at least for a period, had one foot in and one foot out. People like that are almost always gifted analysts. And that's that's you. What about someone like me? I remember first being ushered into the Internet on a balmy early September day in 1995 when I was 30 and finding it kind of slow, a little trivial, but vaguely miraculous. And then it kind of sucked me in over about the next five years. I had been doing email for real for about three mm -hmm. years before that. Of course, what really got me into it was a romance of sorts where the person liked doing that. Before that, I had known email existed, but watched other people doing it and wondered why they weren't spending more time at the library with books. There were people who already would say in 1989, we live online. And I think, Anna, what? What does that, <laughs> that make me? You started using email. And what did you use as a social platform after that? What did you use beyond email? platform. Well, I remember it was only email from 92 through 95. Then got onto the internet and I gradually realized you could do your email through the internet. Social platform. <laughs> I don't think I was on a social platform for a very long time. My social platform was doing a whole lot of email. And then eventually you got you got Facebook, but kind of like in the later. That happened in 08 because I was stalking an ex. Right. Yeah. And then next thing <laughs> I knew, people started friending me. The reason I'm asking about beyond email is because, as you alluded to, email for a long time was this kind of killer app for the Internet. Like more people were hmm. on email than they were on actual websites. Oh, so that was a thing. Right. Exactly. That was completely a thing. That was everybody was on email. So if you were on the internet in the 90s, you were on email. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that dis differentiates people is what else they were doing beyond email. And as you said, you know, you were using the internet as a tool primarily besides email. So I think that puts you in this semi-group that says, I entered the internet as a social life kind of gradually and more reluctantly, but eventually ended up there. Right, right. And I remember people saying in the 90s, well, I'm in this group where people don't know who I am and I pretend to be a man or I'm in this chat group. And I never did that. And I thought to myself, most people don't. It was only some people who did that. It was only some people, but they were disproportionately influential on in terms of what we think of as the Internet. Right, right. Oh, by the way, folks, when I say I was stalking somebody, and I don't mean that I was actually stalking, it's just I looked... <laughs> 
looked her up because I just wondered how her marriage was going. That's all the stuff was. But in <laughs> who it... among us has not Googled somebody we were curious about? Yes. I think you're among friends here. Hopefully. You know, Gretchen, I have to ask <laughs> Don't you actually this. stalk people. I don't support it. It has you know, none, of, none of that. This is a question where if I don't ask you, I'm going to get all this mail saying, why didn't you ask for this? And to be honest, I'm sure you understand this the way I do. I think we pop linguists get tired of this question. Nevertheless, it's a very important one. So I have to ask you because you actually say the most interesting things about this I have ever read anywhere in your book. You actually answer the question in a way that holds attention rather than just sprouting the platitudes that I always do. And the question is, is the internet like making language change sort of faster? Doesn't it seem like it's going faster? And if it is going faster, then why, why, why? That's the question that we get all the time. What is the answer to that question? I was faced with this question while I was writing the book, and I knew I needed to come up with a compelling answer. Yep. And I came up with two answers, and they are yes and no. <laughs> so I'm going to unpack those. <laughs> Please do. So the yes side of the answer comes from social network theory, and it's a theory of weak ties and strong ties. Exactly, yeah. This theory is fairly familiar. You know, your strong ties are your your close friends, people that you share a lot of other acquaintances with, so they're densely embedded into your network. And your weak ties are people you don't share a lot of friends and other acquaintances with. They're less densely embedded. Maybe you see them, but you don't have mutual friends and so on. What this network theory as applied to language change shows us is that you're more likely to pick up new bits of language, phrases, expressions, ways of talking from people who are close ties, but you're more likely to actually be exposed to things you haven't seen before from weak ties because there are more of them. Mm. And if you're in a close tie relationship with someone, chances are you've already been exposed to whatever of their you're language all doing the same you're going to get right. exposed to. Yeah. yeah. It's a similar reason for why you're more likely to get a job referral from a weak tie than from a close tie because you have access to very similar versus different information. Mm -hmm. So... Weak ties increase the rate of information spread, and they can increase the rate of language change. Mm -hmm. Because you're, if you're exposed to more stuff, you might pick up on it. Mm. And so yes. the internet can foster weak ties, because if you remain connected to people on Facebook or wherever that you wouldn't talk to otherwise, if you follow people on Twitter or Instagram who you don't know offline, it can expose you to more weak ties mm -hmm. and thereby enable you to adopt stuff that you wouldn't necessarily have otherwise. That is so satisfying. Keep going. <laughs> that being said, the internet doesn't completely eliminate strong ties either. And so there's still a sense in which language clusters. Just because you're exposed to a new form from somebody doesn't necessarily mean you'll pick it up, particularly if it's associated with some group that you don't necessarily want to be a part of. You know, mm -hmm. you can be on the internet for 20 years and still not use internet slang because you're like, damn it, that would make me one of those internet people. And I'm not one of those people. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> the no side to this question is that there are also some ways in which the technological medium, and especially the tools that we use to help us put language onto this medium, can actually make us more conservative. Mm -hmm. In what way? One of these ways is spell check. Mm. Spell check helpfully tries to present you with the word it thinks you want, but it also makes it harder to type, especially on a phone, the words that aren't in its dictionary. Mm -hmm. And so if you're doing a lot more handwritten writing... Spelling can change fairly fluidly because you're not automatically filtering all your spellings through something that's regularizing it towards a particular direction. Exactly. Exactly. You have more scope for potential variation. Right. And 
On the internet, there are some creative respellings, which I like to call them rather than misspellings, because people are doing <laughs> it very consciously. <laughs> but on the ones that are kind of below the level of this has a particular emphatic effect, you know, how many C's and S's there are in necessary. I don't mm -hmm. care. This doesn't affect my tone of voice. <laughs> this is just some sort of thing. I might as well obey the computer when it tells me how many C's and S's there are. There's no tone to affect there, right? Yeah. Exactly. And especially because computer-mediated tools often pick one spelling to recommend rather than several possible spellings, even if several possible spellings have been a legitimate option for a long time. Mm -hmm. So if you say something like traveled, it's going to recommend either one L or two L's, mm -hmm. and it'll only pick one of those. Both of those have been recognized as legitimate variants in English by dictionaries and so on, but a spell check will say, you want to be consistent in the same document, and so we're going to enforce that by only picking one of them to recommend ever. Right, right. Or I-Z-E versus I-S-E in a word like organize. Mm -hmm. It's going to pick one to recommend, even though both of them are recognized as variants in English. Mm -hmm. So... It can sometimes make us more conservative because only one option is being recommended by the machine, even when a dictionary would reflect multiple options. Exactly. It's from the weak ties that you get new things. You'd think it would be from the strong ones because we associate strength and novelty. But no, it's from the weaker ties that novelty comes. This, folks, is the essence of science, at least for me. This is part of what makes linguistics interesting, that you find unexpected things, not things that you just would have known anyway, dressed up with fancy technology, but things that you wouldn't know. The counterintuitive is the most fun. And it's one of those things, like, Gretchen, what, where, for example, do we get this strong weak tie theory originally? This traces back to the Milroys, right? So there's this great paper by Milroy and Milroy that looks at strong weak ties as applied to language change in Belfast, Ireland, I think if I'm getting that right. Mm -hmm. And they and looked at right. <laughs> and some other places. I was especially taken by their comparison between Icelandic and English. Icelandic goes back to Old Norse. Old Norse and Old English were you could look at them and be like, oh yeah, these are definitely related. Very closely related, right. But since that same common ancestor, English has undergone a lot more linguistic change than Icelandic has, despite the fact that the same time depth has applied to both languages. Exactly. So Icelanders can still go and read their sagas. With minimal pain, right. Yeah, they have a bit of trouble, I think, but they can kind of do it in yeah. the way that an English speaker can kind of approach Shakespeare and kind of know what's going on. But Shakespeare is a lot shallower of a time depth than the sagas. This is like trying to go back and read Beowulf, which for English speakers is a fundamentally different language. Exactly. What's happened in English over the same time span is that we've had more weak ties introduced at a societal level. You know, first of all, we've had the Norman Conquest, the various invasions and colonialism of our own as English speakers, and had a lot more contact between speakers of other languages that have influenced English. But also English society has had more of a tradition of uprooting and going into a big city to seek your fortune exactly. away from the friends and family that you already knew. So you build weak ties as well. Cities are a huge place for weak ties because you can have several different friend groups who don't necessarily know each other because it's mm -hmm. big enough that you can do that. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Iceland, there's still a tendency to maintain those strong tie connections. Icelandic surnames are still based on the name of your father or sometimes your mother plus son or daughter. These or daughter child. things, right, yeah to reflect where you are in this sense of social networks. 
Mm-hmm. And so they've had a lot less language change over the same period of time. See, this is the fun thing because you can read some of these papers in isolation and you're thinking, well, Reykjavik and you know England and who cares? And I think you and I care, but you know, a person might look at those things in isolation and think, who cares about this difference between Iceland and England or these people hanging out on their front steps in Belfast? But the thing is, these are genuine general principles that end up applying to, of all things, social media. But in any case, in terms of the timing of my version of this show, I especially suppose that some of you are waiting for a song and let's make it about speed. Let's make it a song called Faster Than Sound because that's the one that I'm thinking of. There are about 25 of you who think that I'm about to play Tammy Grimes in the Broadway musical High Spirits singing this song in 1964. You're wrong only because Tammy Grimes was so off key that unless you're a real fan, I frankly wouldn't want to play that cut. So let's do a little bit of extra teaching here. That song was originally written written for the movie Athena, 1954. It's about health and nutrition, except it's an early 50s MGM musical. That works about as well as you can imagine. I highly recommend it, though, because the scoring is good and Faster Than Sound was originally sung by Vic Damone in this movie and cut. Here he is singing it and on pitch, and it's a nice song. If you want to hear it done by Tammy Grimes, well, you can find that online. So here is Vic Damone, not alive rather recently singing faster than sound tell me it isn't catchy actually if you don't think so you don't need to write me and tell me the time has come the walrus said to speak of many things of flying saucers rocket ships and atom driven wings but till the day that finds us planet bound i'll make the earth my happy hunting ground lunch in london okay parry to Singapore in time for tea. Flying is the life for me. I get around faster than sound. Two old fashions in Tokyo and dinner over Gretchen, I want to ask you a question. Lately, yeah. I've been using exclamation points all over my emails, and I am not a chirpy person. I can look at emails that I wrote a generation ago and they had periods, damn it. And now it's at the point where I'm beginning to feel that if I don't pepper most of my emails with exclamation points, I seem severe. What happened? (laughs) The exclamation point is this fascinating bit of internet history because it's actually gone through two hype cycles at this point. Hmm, Two. Two. Back in the 90s, people were using, and even earlier, people were using exclamation points and multiple exclamation points for excitement and emphasis and things like this. But then also, do you remember the stylized sort of exclamation mark, exclamation mark, one, one, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, one, exclamation mark? No, I don't. But please tell us about it because it made me jog my memory. (laughs) This was key. So this was, you know, you're so excited about something like, oh, gee, I can't believe, you know, Clinton elected again or something. Right. Yeah. Whatever was going on in the 90s. (laughs) My my Tamagotchi died. (laughs) (laughs) Right. People weren't talking about politics like this. This was. (laughs) But what was this, this thing that people were doing? So it started out by people writing, you know, multiple exclamation marks in a row for emphasis. But then because the exclamation mark is on the same key of the keyboard as the number one, sometimes you'd be typing your exclamation mark and your finger would slip and you'd end up typing one instead because you wouldn't hold down the shift key the whole time. People weren't very good at typing in the 90s. (laughs) Okay. This became stylized until you got people who would actually write the word 
O-N-E. So exclamation mark, exclamation mark, O-N-E, exclamation mark, because as if they're doing it deliberately. That's very clever, but I guess I was friends with or dating the wrong people. I I missed this, but that was the first phase. Yeah, that was an earlier phase. So this becomes a thing people do for excitement, and then it becomes a thing people do for irony because it's no longer fully exciting anymore. And then the exclamation mark just kind of falls off a cliff, and people aren't using the exclamation mark very much anymore at all. (laughs) This I remember, yeah. And then you get this kind of gradual reemergence of the exclamation mark. You know, so let's say it falls off the cliff into the 2000s just to lump things in conveniently for decades. Then you get in the 2010s this kind of gradual resurgence of the exclamation mark, partly for politeness purposes. So a single exclamation mark is often very polite. If you're excited to see someone, then you're sincere about seeing someone, then you're Mm. sincere about being cheerful. The transition from excitement to sincerity is a very sort of customer service-y thing to be. Very, yeah. Welcome to Walmart. (laughs) Yes. We are pleased to see you here. And it has to have an exclamation point to show that you're kind of on the TV. Right, yeah. That has an exclamation point because otherwise, you know, welcome to Walmart. We are pleased to see you. (laughs) It just doesn't have the same sort of residence. No. How do you think this fits into comic books, though? Maybe old comic books. Archie was like that. It was like, well, Veronica, we're going down to the the malt shop. And there would always be an exclamation point. I think I'll have the fish. Exclamation point. And that's the way at least old comic books were written. And I don't read comic books anymore. But there seemed to be this overgeneration of the exclamation point. I guess maybe to heighten things or to make things seem kind of vibrant. I don't know. I think it's a similar sort of thing. You know, comics are trying to represent speech or they're trying to represent an informal variety of how we're actually talking with each other back and forth. You can see it showing up there. But the kind of email sense is like, thanks for your feedback, exclamation mark. I'll take it into consideration. Right. (laughs) To show that you're not angry about the feedback, even if you actually are. So there's this very like work context for that single exclamation mark in email. And then you get the resurgence of the multiple exclamation marks as well, which is kind of exciting. Yeah. What does two of them mean? So this is a thing that came up in... (laughs) actually the New York Times review of of my book, where they're saying two exclamation marks has this meaning of, you know, slightly more politeness, but slightly less than real enthusiasm, which is three or four or more. Yeah, It's got this sort of like hedging your bets between, okay, you want to add one more just to show that it's not your default politeness, but it's somewhere in between that level of enthusiasm. But right. exclamation marks are really slippery because a couple years ago, people were saying to me, I've never used two. Two is weird. Two is insincere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think exclamation marks are staying still. If you're a listener from the future and you're listening to this episode in 2025, <laughs> that's probably not what they mean for you. I don't yeah. know what they mean for you, but they probably mean something different. Even just five years. You're right. You're right. Even just five years from now, it will be different. That's what's exciting about this. And the slang keeps changing. And on that subject, notice I did that kind of transition. I'm imitating Kurt Anderson. As we're talking about slang, here is another question. You have all of these articles and they say that, you know, instant messaging, et cetera, are just full of slang. You know, why are the kids talking this way? And another interesting part of your book is that you show that there really isn't all that much slang in the given swatch of instant messaging. What is instant messaging actually like if it is different from the language of, say, the Wall Street Journal? The thing that I find fascinating about instant messaging and chat, broadly speaking, is that it's this perfect intersection of writing, but also informality. Mm -hmm. So we often talk about internet writing as if it's like speech, but it's written down. But there's something important about the written medium as well. So it's informal, it's conversational, it has a lot of back and forth the way that an informal conversation does. Yeah. 
But when you compare, say, a formal piece of writing, you know, a newspaper article to a formal piece of speaking, like a public speech or a, you know, newscaster or a play or something like this, one of the things you find about formal writing compared to formal speaking is that formal writing supports longer sentences, supports more words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is because we can read faster than we can talk and we can listen generally. And when you're reading, you can skim back and you can see what happened in a previous sentence or previous paragraph. And that's okay. You're, it allows you to like handle a higher level of information complexity. Right. And so when it comes to chat, you get this confluence of informal conversation back and forth and more words. And what mm -hmm. that turns into is the potential for overlapping conversations happening all at once, which is right. exactly what you see in chat. Right. Right. It's almost art. Yeah. So sometimes when you're talking with someone, even if you're just talking with one person, you can be maintaining two conversational threads at once. Mm -hmm. And that's because the chat medium lets you, because you can both be replying to each other's messages, you know, in parallel. And that lets you have this multi-stream conversation, or you can be having multiple chats going on at the same time, whether that's together in one chat room or that several different windows having multiple chats. And that's really something that's very unique to the internet. Mm -hmm. because conversational writing hasn't really been possible for. How do you have a real-time conversation if you have to, like, send someone a physical piece of paper? Right, we forget how it. weird and wonderful this is, yeah. <laughs> the closest analogy I can think of is, you know, back from my student days, uh, when we were sitting in particularly boring classes. <laughs> I won't, I won't uh, out any of my instructors by name here. <laughs> they were all great. I love my professors. They were fantastic. Right. <laughs> Introduction to linguistics. My non-linguistics classes. <laughs> um, sometimes I would sit next to a friend and we would have a sheet of paper between us. And so mm -hmm. we weren't so much passing notes as we were just like having a conversation on remember one that? sheet of paper yeah, sitting I remember between doing us. That. Yeah. You know, you could do this in university when you were allowed to pick your own seats. Right. Right. <laughs> and you just had a piece of paper on the table between us and we'd be like, yeah, do you, oh my gosh, this is so boring. Yeah, I know it is. And you could <laughs> yeah. have this kind of conversational style. And even at the time, that reminded me of having an instant messenger chat conversation <laughs> that you were back and forth in writing. Yeah. But of course, if we weren't constrained by the classroom environment when we couldn't be whispering, there would be no reason like to that. ever do that. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Why would you do that? And the funny thing is you can save those. I still have two or three things like that from my childhood into graduate school. Actually, for me, there was a class foundations of language and it was taught very badly. And I did that with a friend of mine <laughs> and kept the piece of paper. And it was very dynamic. It was a really exciting way of communicating, especially if you read it back. But you would only do it in that very constrained circumstance. Then you would go back out into the real world. Now you can do that all the time. That's definitely and true. I I found myself even at the time, I should look back and see if I still have any of those in my old binders because I still have the old binders. <laughs> but I found myself even at the time reaching for things like drawing little smiley faces the yeah. way that I would put an emoji or an, or an emoticon at the time in a chat message, reaching yeah. for a smiley face, reaching for LOL because it felt like a similar medium to me. Mm -hmm. You wanted to get the humanness into it. Exactly. Yeah, you wanted that humor. You know, you couldn't actually laugh out loud because the prof's right there. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so you've got to convey your amusement somehow, and you can't really use your face because you're trying to look like you're still paying you're attention You're just to supposed class. to be paying attention. Right, that really was the proto version of this sort of thing. And people who were especially comfortable with the written medium were probably better at it. I, and I remember that was something I did with my nerdier kinds of friends. But now it's much more democratic. So in other words, it's not just all about slang. But, you know, 
there are songs about slang and I'm not going to play something from Bye Bye Birdie. I'm going to give you something that's really obscure, which is, of course, not my way. This is a song written by Harold Arlen, who wrote the songs for The Wizard of Oz, and Johnny Mercer, who wrote a whole lot of other songs just as good. And this is from a very obscure semi-musical called Blues in the Night. It's kind of a musical noir from the 40s. I almost recommend it. And the songs tend to be kind of thrown away, including this one. Priscilla Lane, very dubbed, does this one. It's called Hang On to Your Lids, Kids. Nobody's ever heard of it. It's massively catchy. This rendition smooths it out musically a little bit. There was a sheet published, though. It's rare, but, you know, there are people who could set you up with the sheet. Musicians out there who want to know really exactly how the song went. There are people who can set you up. Hint, hint. In any case, this is Hang On to Your Lids, Kids. Hi, diddly-dum-dum-dum. So what if we're busted chum? Hang on to your lids, kids. Here we go again. Yeah, ma'am. So what if we're on the cuff and fresh out of things and stuff? Hang on to your lids, kids. Here we go again. Why say that we're on the ropes? I say. Where's they go? Hang on to your hopes, dopes. So what if we're in a spin? That's really where we came in. We're living and that ain't tin. Hang on to your lids, kids. Here we go again. I literally dum dum dum. Move over there, here we come. Hang on to your cappies, chappies. Here we go again. Oh, solid. So maybe we got no moves. Mm -hmm. Some cars are the same way too. Oh. Hang on to your tops, pops. Here we go again. Murder. Why cry when we hit the curb? We cry. Give it, boy. Ben Franklin once said it all. What did he say, boy? Divided, we got a ball. United, we'll have a ball. Hang on to your lids, kids. Here we go again. This is Nostradamus style thinking here. <laughs> Where will the internet be? Like, not in 50 years. Like, God, who cares? You know, we'll, we'll all be dead then, probably anyway. Where will the. I hope to still be alive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm worried about the planet. No, I actually don't intend to die either. Are you like that? I'm, I'm staying. But where will internet language be just in 10 years? Not 2025, but let's say 2029, 10 years from now. Is everything now going to look antique or have we maybe hit a kind of a plateau? I don't know if you feel like answering that question, but of course, anybody's going to wonder at reading your book. One of the things that I'm really looking forward to is so something we've seen in the 2010s has been this resurgence of stuff from the 90s, but ironically. Hmm. And so what I'm really looking forward to in the 2020s is the potential resurgence of stuff from the 2000s, <laughs> but ironically. <laughs> so, you know, you get all of this stuff, you know, like ASCII art has come back. People are making stuff out of oh, yeah. you know, punctuation characters and stuff like that. And there was a period in the 2000s when you wouldn't be caught dead making ASCII art. Like, no, that it was, was so old antique, school. No right. one was doing ASCII it art. It was like music with synthesizers now. Exactly. Yeah. Right. You know, it was like the wrong shape of jeans or something. It, you know, bell-bottom <laughs> jeans when bell-bottom <laughs> jeans weren't cool or something. And like exactly. now everyone's wearing wide like pants again. Right. So so ASCII art has this resurgence. The sparkles that you put around words to make them kind of cute or excited or ironic, those mm -hmm. are having a resurgence. So what seems likely to me is that we'll also have this resurgence of stuff from back what we called the Web 2.0 era. You know, remember mm. when everything was bubbly and translucent and, <laughs> you know, everything had a, had a drop shadow and, like, right. suddenly everything was kind of exaggeratedly 3D as opposed to this, like, very flat, you know, pixelated graphics of That's the That's going to be of a era? period. You're right. You're right. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to the resurgence, and I don't know <laughs> if I'm jinxing it by saying it out loud. <laughs> But I just think this is how fashion cycles work, right? Because the, the internet is as much a part of a fashion cycle as anything in society. You know, like clothes come in and out, food comes in and out, mm -hmm. bits of slang can come in and out and, and resurge again, ironically. 
Yeah. And we live in an era of irony, especially. So not only do things come back, but these days things come back in quotation marks. And you can be almost sure that that's going to happen, especially because the Internet in its past stages is always available. So, yeah, you're right. That's going to be exciting. Do you anticipate doing, say, a new edition of Because Internet in, say, 15 years? I don't know. I mean, we'll see if people buy the first edition. Well, folks, you know, you should buy it. It's yellow, for one thing. It stands out. So go to your friendly bookseller. Or if you're not doing that, then frankly, it's, you're probably going to get it online. But look for the yellow book. It's called Because Internet. And it's by Gretchen McCullough, who is one of my favorite linguists in the world. And only partly because she is a public linguist, internet linguist. She has written what is bound to be for a long time, the book about how we use language online. And Gretchen, thank you for coming on today when you have so much else to do. Thank you so much for having me. This has been tremendously fun. Best of luck with the book. And Gretchen, as always, we will we will see each other around. See you later, John. So things are always changing. We just said goodbye to Gretchen and we're going to be not too long from now saying goodbye to 2019 and we'll have to catch up some other time. There's a song called that from On the Town written by Leonard Bernstein with lyrics by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. And here is one part of my favorite recording of it. This is Rhoda's mom, folks. This is Nancy Walker. If you don't remember Rhoda's mom and you remember the Rosie from the Bounty Paper Towel commercials, the quicker picker upper, this is Nancy Walker singing songs. That used to be the main thing she did. And here she is in her chorus of some other time. Didn't get half my wishes Never have seen you dry the dishes Oh well, we'll catch up some other time can satisfy my craving Watched you while you're shaving. Oh well, we'll catch up some other time. Just when the fun's beginning, comes the final By the way, folks, if you want to learn about words for feet and butts and get a hit of Busby Berkeley in the bargain, then you have to subscribe to Slate Plus. It's very important. I do this little addendum each week now. And, you know, it's only $35 for the whole first year whole year, not month. Notice I didn't say month. I said year. And then you get that extra little bit. You can't hear it anywhere else. It's not online. You have to sign up. But that means that you don't have to listen to me or anybody else doing any commercials. And the extra money helps support not only this show, but of course, more importantly, all the other Slate podcasts that are wonderful in all of their ways. So you have to get Slate Plus this week, though. If you want to know about the feet and the butts, you got to get Slate Plus. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. I will answer your messages anon, but not a now. 
In any case, you know, when Scandinavians used to write me, often there's a tradition there that you have an exclamation point when you greet somebody in writing. So there would be a note on my door at a conference or somebody would write me an email and would say, John, with the exclamation point. And I always thought that meant that they liked me, people from Sweden and Finland. And now I know that's just something they did. They were kind of previous on this business of using exclamation points to indicate friendliness. I now realize that back then in the 90s, those Scandinavians really didn't like me that much. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John Volo. Faster than sound.